Good morning and welcome uh, to Erndale Alliance Church's online service. My name is Matthew Dirksen. I'm the youth and young adults pastor here at Erndale Alliance Church. Uh, we're so glad to have you join us as we worship God together. And before we get to that, we just have a couple announcements we want to share with you. And so I invite you, uh, as this is recorded, pause the video, pull up the e-bulletin e and see all the things as I go through it that, that are there for your info uh, to help you out. So a couple announcements is that uh, today is Communion Sunday. And we have two ways in which we're going to do that. We're going to do an online Zoom thing at 12.30 today uh, where everyone from the church can come on to a Zoom call. And the details for that Zoom call is sent to you by email, I believe, this morning. Uh, pull that up. That's at 12.30. We're going to do this all together. And if you can't make that Zoom call, uh, we will post the, the pre-recorded message that Jordan did last uh, month uh, during communion. And so that's really exciting. We're, we're really looking forward to seeing all your faces on that Zoom. So please uh, join with us for the Zoom at, at 1230 today for communion together. A couple other announcements. Jordan will be starting a prayer and fasting workshop next Sunday, July 5th. And he'll be doing that all of July. So that's a really exciting Thing we're going to start doing that'll be before church service, which normally starts, as you know, 10:30. We're going to start this around nine o'clock, and the details are again in your e bulletin. So take a look at that. It's uh, it's going to be a really good time of both encouragement, uh, learning, and being stretched in our understanding of how do we pray and fast. Because I know a lot of us struggle with that. My, I myself struggle with fasting, so it's a good thing to learn, to grow in, and to take steps. Uh, in that direction. So that's really exciting. One, uh, two more announcements. Normally, I would invite all the grads up on stage. We'd have a celebration. We'd all clap for them, but they'll just have to get my celebration. So congratulations to all those who are graduating. Al's joining, and we got a party here. Uh, no, we don't. It's just me and Al. But we're really excited uh, to see you guys grow up in your faith and also just physically as you step into adulthood. Uh, this is a very exciting time, so we want to congratulate you, Serena, Grace, and Kathy, as you move on from grade 12 to uh, the adult life and whatever that holds for you. And we pray that God leads you as you move into whatever he's calling you to. A very exciting time, and we're just celebrating with you uh, what a great achievement it is to graduate high school. So congratulations. Lastly, our office will be closed this week, not Wednesday for Canada Day, but Thursday, July 2nd, in lieu of Canada Day. So our office will be open Monday to Wednesday and then be closed Thursday until the following Monday. Uh, so just take note of that. If you want to contact us in any way, you can come on Canada Day, but we will be closed uh, Thursday the 2nd. That is all the announcements we have. Um, we're really excited now as we turn to prayer, worship, and, and Jordan will come and speak in a little bit. So let's bow together, and, and as you know, when I do the time of prayer, I'm going to just open us up in prayer and then I invite you to go through the prayer page on the e-newsletter and pray for different things. I will also have a slide up for you that will kind of highlight some of the things we're praying for this week. And so let me just open us to this time of prayer. So let's bow together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. Lord, help us to understand in a new way 
your love, your everlasting love that reaches the ends of the earth. Lord, each of us are going through uh, different weeks, going through different days, experiencing different things. And Lord, I ask that you come to each of us as we need. Strengthen those who are weak. Bless those who are needy. Encourage those who are, are struggling right now. Lift them up. Lord God, I ask that you give peace to those who are worrying. And that you'll strengthen the weak, Lord God. And in all this, we know that you are in control. Everything we are going through pales in consideration that you are an all-powerful God who is in control. So Lord, may we rest. May we experience your peace knowing that you are this amazing God and that you love us so very much. Lord God, I ask that as we continue on in prayer together, that you hear our prayers. We know that you do and help us to rest in that assurance, that promise that you hear us. I invite you now to, to pray for different things in the, the bulletin and on the, that's on the screen right now. Amen.
All right. Good morning, um, or whatever time it is that you're joining us. Um, my name is Sophia, and this morning I'm going to be doing our Bible reading. So I invite you to go grab your Bibles and join me as we read Acts chapter 6, and we're going to do verses 1 to 15. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews, that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, or and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen Synagogue, composed both of Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Good morning and welcome to our time in scripture this morning. My name is Pastor Joran Green. For those of you just joining us, we are going to be in Acts chapter 6. And for those of you who've been with us the last few weeks, you know we're doing a series looking at the life of the early church and what it was that God was doing and what its, what its application or implications are for us today. Uh, recently, we've looked at the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 and that rapid, incredible church growth that came out of the gift of the Spirit empowering the ministry of the apostles. And we looked at some of the challenges the Sanhedrin has presented as they've tried to block the spread of the gospel talked about the sin of Ananias and Sapphira and the damage it's done. And we now come to Acts chapter 6, which is a text where we have a problem, but no one's necessarily sinned, at least not in the way that Ananias and Sapphira did. As we come to Acts 6, I'm reminded of premarital counseling, which is something my wife and I have had the privilege of doing many times over the years with being in a Bible college. we call them bridal colleges sometimes because of the high rate of marriages we have coming out of them. Dorothy keeps scrapbooks or photo books of all the couples that we've worked with. Either we've done the wedding or we've done the premarital counseling or maybe both. 
And we're, I believe, on book number three. I'm not sure the exact number of couples we've worked with, but it's quite a few. One of the questions I put to them in one of our counseling sessions is, who's going to cook? Who's going to clean? Who's going to do washrooms? Who's going to do laundry? The, the basic practical things that go into being a family unit, being a husband and wife. And very often we get that self-satisfied look, particularly from the, the groom-to-be. We've talked about these things. We know who's going to do these things. And then I'll pause partway through and go, okay, let's redo that exercise. But now consider that you have three children. Who's going to cook? Who's going to clean? Who's going to buy groceries? Who's going to work? And the challenges that you suddenly see them working through in their minds as they realize bigger families come with unique needs and unique challenges. And the church is no different. They've had thousands come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to this point as we come to Acts 6. And there's some just practical realities of what does it look like to live as a church? Think about Arendale and uh, our few hundred people that call this church home and the various challenges that that brings up in contrast to smaller churches, larger churches. Well, with this in mind, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 6 as we open in prayer. Holy God, would you guide us into all truth? Holy Spirit, would you come wherever we are, speak to our hearts, and reveal to us what you'd have us to hear? Confront us, convict us, encourage us, renew us, and Holy Spirit, have your way according to your will and your purpose for your glory in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 6 begins with a growth problem. We read this in verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And what's being referenced here in particular is the distribution of food. Ancient world widows would not have the opportunity to go and find employment. An ancient world widow would either need children to sustain her, or if she was young enough, she might go back to her parents' house or maybe hope to remarry. But the reality was to be a widow in the ancient world would be much like an orphan. There's no government subsidies. There's not necessarily any opportunity where you can do anything for yourself to change your situation. And if there is not a loved one nearby willing to intervene, you're really left only with begging. Well, we saw previously, we have men like Joseph, also known as Barnabas, who had sold a piece of property, laid the money at the apostles' feet. We now come to realize some of that money was being used to buy food to care for this group of widows who have no one else looking after them. They have no one else supporting them. The church had taken on this role of a very practical physical need. And we're reminded of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount about looking after one another. Uh, Jesus, at one point in, in the Gospel of Matthew, actually talks about uh, giving me a drink of water. Well, when you do it to one of the least of these, you do it to me. The church took these kind of ideas very seriously. And so the apostles have been handing out food. The problem is the church has now gotten too large. There's too much going on. And so the apostles recognize the need is legitimate. If no one's feeding this, these widows, they're forced to beg. Their situation is dire. They can't fix the situation themselves. We need to look after them. But... Maybe this isn't our job. And so they put their heads together, and the solution they come up with and they take before the church is, let's find a group who can carry this burden. Verse 3. Brothers and sisters, this is the apostle speaking. Brothers and sisters, select from among you 
seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who can appoint, we can appoint to this duty, and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so what the apostles recognize, we have to fill this need, but we can't do it. We've been called to the ministry of the word. We've been called to the ministry of prayer. Jesus has placed a very clear mandate upon Peter, James, John, the other apostles, that they need to do the work of ministry, but these widows need to be looked after. So they lay down some fairly high criteria. These men need to be wise. They need to be spirit-filled, godly men of good reputation. But they say to the church, let's find seven men who can step in and care for these widows. Now, in particular, something we haven't touched on yet, there's a very particular issue with this distribution of food, and that is the Hellenistic and Hebraic widows. And this is going to come out in the list that is presented because they say, let's appoint seven men, and the seven men are now appointed. A Hellenistic widow is a Jewish woman who has grown up outside of Palestine, does not speak Aramaic, the local language of Palestine, but she has, for whatever reason, found herself now in Palestine, does not speak the language, and now has no support network. So she's a foreigner, but she's a local foreigner. It's, it's a really challenging position to be in. The Hebraic widows, in contrast, would have been women who grew up in Palestine, knew Aramaic, could speak the local language. And in particular, the complaint has arisen, not just that the food needs to be distributed, but the Hebraic widows who can speak for themselves and know the language, can look after themselves to some degree, are getting all the attention. And the women who do not have the language They've been neglected. So when we look at this list of seven, verse five, including Stephen, interesting thing with this list, every one of these seven names is a Greek name. There's a sensitivity up on the part of the church as they appoint these seven deacons to step in and support the ministry of the apostles so the apostles can focus on what they've been called to. They actually, in sensitivity, particularly appoint seven men who could speak the language of these Hebraic and Hellenistic widows so that no one's being overlooked and no one's being neglected. So their needs are being properly cared for. There's actually an interesting name on this list at the end of verse five, Nicholas, who's a convert from Antioch, which means he wasn't even born Jewish. He has become a Jew. He has undergone circumcision as an adult and has joined the community of God's people. And Luke is starting to nudge us towards this idea that the gospel is not just for Jews, but for Samaritans and for Gentiles, that God wants to save the whole world. And we're now introduced to our first non-Jewish character in the story, in the history of what happened in the church, as Nicholas, this convert from Antioch, is one of these men selected to serve. These are godly men, all speaking Greek, and that sensitivity is really profound to me. The result of it in verse 7 We've picked our seven. They're doing the ministry. The apostles devoted to their ministry. Verse seven, we read, so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. We're not told specifically who these priests are, but it's reminiscent of uh, John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zachariah, where he was a priest serving at the temple, serving at the altar of God. Possibly they're Sadducees. We're not really certain. 
The, the priest label doesn't give us a lot of clarity on the specifics of who these men are. But we're now seeing that the words of the apostles have started to touch the ears of the religious elite. And they are starting to convert. And we're going to see more of this as Acts unfolds. But we see this incredible blessing on the church. Well, the story doesn't end there. Because we encounter Stephen, who not only is he involved in giving out food both to Hebrew and to Hellenistic widows... But we now find he's at the local synagogue. Initially, when I started studying scripture, I was confused. Why would we have a synagogue in Jerusalem if we have the temple? But this again underscores and emphasizes this tension between the Hebrew and the Hellenistic widows. Because the synagogue that he is at, he's at the Freedmen's Synagogue. This is a Greek-speaking synagogue. Because what was happening, Jews have been scattered since really the time of Daniel to the four winds We've got a Jewish community in Alexandria. We've got a Jewish community in Rome. We've got Jewish communities throughout the known world at this point. And many would learn the indigenous language. They're born, they're raised outside of Palestine. Many want to come back to Palestine, come back to Jerusalem. Maybe they're there for a season, Passover, Pentecost. Maybe they decide to emigrate back and join the family, the, the extended family back in their ancestral land. We don't know. But what's happened is we have people coming back to Jerusalem who don't know Aramaic. They're weak on Aramaic. And so they create their own synagogue where they can get together and speak Greek and still have fellowship. I find this a fascinating idea as we live in a multicultural city, in a multicultural country, in a multicultural world, and the challenge of being able to speak and to be understood in a language that is near and dear to our heart that the other person can properly understand. This isn't a modern challenge. This has been with us since the Tower of Babel. He's at the synagogue of freedmen where Greek-speaking Jews probably would have congregated for fellowship because while they want to go to the temple, they may not always understand what's being said. He's there. He begins to argue and show from Scripture that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And in fact, Stephen, as we watch what he's doing, in verse 8 there, great wonders, signs that he's performing. He actually looks like the apostles. He's not an apostle, but his ministry looks very similar to them. And as the apostles are proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he's proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior with the people of his own language. Opposition rises. Verse 10. They were unable to stand against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking... So verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Just like Jesus, they want someone to oppose him. They can't find anyone who can bring legitimate charges. But they go ahead with a court case anyway and find liars to accuse Jesus falsely. Stephen is now accused falsely. And just as the Sanhedrin was opposing the apostles and consistently they don't stop and ask is what the apostles teaching true but they react very much out of jealousy though we have a hint that a few have listened if we remember back to verse 7 we have a hint that maybe those words didn't fall on totally deaf ears because some priests have now come to faith in Jesus Stephen is doing the same kind of ministry proclaiming and just as they lied about Jesus they're now lying about Stephen the charges against him Blasphemy against Moses and against God are similar to the charges leveled against Jesus, and they are charges deserving of death if true. 
So the situation Stephen now finds himself in is very serious. And we're actually going to leave the story there for this week because Stephen's defense in Acts 7 is going to take us at least two weeks. If I was teaching this at college, we'd probably spend three or four classes working through what is it Stephen says. His speech, his defense before the Sanhedrin is one of our great doctrinal texts of the book of Acts as we come to better understand who is Jesus, what has Jesus done, and how much planning did God put into sending Jesus? Because Stephen's message is clear. What was done to Jesus is just a continuation of a pattern since day one, and God has sovereignly done all of this, and you're just like your forefathers. So that court case will take us a couple weeks to get through. But before we get to it, with these charges pending, I want to ask, what does this text mean for us today? And I want to suggest a couple of things we can take away from Acts 6. As we leave the story hanging with Stephen, you know, his, how does it put it here? His face like that of an angel as the case is about to be heard. He's about to give us a defense. Three things we can take away from it. The first one I want to challenge us with is the question, what do we do with people who are different from us? In recent weeks, we have had situations in both Canada and the United States where racism has been pushed to the forefront again and we're forced to ask questions of race. To me, interestingly, in Acts 6, they're not really racial questions because the widows are all Jewish. Acts 6 is really a challenge to me to realize we divide over race and we have racism and, and we set up barriers. But in the absence of clear, visible things to separate over, we will find other things to separate over from those who are different from us. In this case, it's what is your language? And there's a challenge for us here because what we see the apostles doing is taking very clear steps to make sure that all people are provided for equal dignity for both those speaking Greek and those speaking Hebrew. And they want to make sure that they're all properly honored. And interestingly, who's selected to step up and do the ministry It's the Greek-speaking men who would also know Aramaic, who could stand in that gap and bridge because God has called one people. Uh, When Paul writes in Ephesians, he talks about the mystery that is now revealed in Jesus Christ. The mystery isn't that Jesus is God. The mystery isn't that God loves us. The mystery isn't God created the world. The mystery is this, that in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile have been brought together as one people. And we're reminded that God is only making one kingdom. How do we deal with those who are different? What kind of considerations do we give them? It's actually a little bit ironic. This will be the first Sunday as you're watching where you're going to notice we actually have Chinese slides of the scripture texts. And in our dialogue, how can we do our services better? And and what are the needs of our congregations? One of the requests that came out of some of our congregation members, could we have the scripture in Chinese so that we can read it in our native language? This is a fabulous request. This is the first step as we try to better ask, how can we live out being one people in Jesus Christ? And I'm so excited to watch as God calls us as a church from different nations in different languages to be one people in Jesus Christ. How do we handle those who are different? Our second challenge here is a reminder there's a cost to being obedient to Jesus. We've talked about with this with the Sanhedrin and the apostles. Now we encounter Stephen, who's a deacon serving in a ministry that's been delegated to him. 
And as he does the business of being a disciple of Jesus among his people at that synagogue of the freedmen, opposition arises. There's again this reminder to us that Christian life does not promise us comfort or peace. We are to be people of peace and people of joy. But the reality of our world, our world is hostile to us. This is enemy territory. And we need to guard our hearts and be aware. Sometimes there is a cost and we can do everything right and still encounter persecution. We need to pray for those who are persecuted. We have a pretty easy candidate this time. But I'm mindful of some of my friends in overseas places where they live in enemy territory. And I've got friends who are home from overseas places because the situation in the world has become such that they can't safely even go back to the people they love and the country they believe they are supposed to be in ministering the gospel to because of the situation. There's a cost to our obedience. And the third idea is an idea we're going to explore quite a bit in probably the next year as a congregation. And that is, where do I fit in the body of Christ? I alluded to this when I ask a young engaged couple who's going to cook, who's going to clean. And I don't assume those answers because uh, there can be any number of reasons why someone might cook or someone might clean. Uh, oddly enough, in my family, I think our best cook is our youngest family member. Don't assume the answer's there. But the fact is, all those duties need to be covered. For us to be effective as a family, Dorothy and I had to sit down and figure out who's going to do what to make sure that all the duties are covered. Then as Michael and Catherine joined our family, those duties shifted and now we're in a new phase of life as we're getting ready to be empty nesters. The kids will go off to college. We're gonna have to rethink those things. In the same way, a church needs to stop and ask, how do we do the ministry we're called to and how do we empower people to the ministry particularly God's calling them to? In the last couple of weeks with working through some of the challenges with COVID and meeting with the COVID team as we discuss what's it gonna look like to reopen and I've been meeting with prayer teams and I've been meeting with worship teams and I meet with the staff, I'm reminded there is no way one person can do all the work of Arendelle Alliance Church. A small team cannot do the work of Arendelle Alliance Church. My job as pastor is to equip and empower those who are called And their job, your job, is to do what God has equipped and empowered you to do so that I can do my job. And it becomes this this family kind of an idea that as we serve one another and do what God has enabled and empowered us to do, ministry will happen. For the apostles, they recognize the food needs to be distributed. We need to take proper care of our widows. But we can't do it ourselves because if we do, it's at the expense of something we can't delegate away, we can't give away. We have to do because Jesus gave it to us. And so my question for us is, what is the role God's calling each of us as individuals to in the body? Some people have incredible giftings in one area but not another. Some have a broad scope of gifts. I'm not interested in what is your gift. I'm not interested in how many gifts do you have. My question is, are you faithful to use what God has given you to bless the people of God as God expects you to? Because as I do what I'm called to, as you do what you're called to, as we each do the task God has equipped us and empowered us to do, the body of Christ grows and expands. Some of you know the frustration of having to do things that you're not good at. There's things I'm not good at. One of my failings is as a teacher, and particularly two things I cannot teach. I cannot teach computers, which is ironic because I was a computer tech for seven years, and I cannot teach people how to drive a car. I can teach scripture, 
I have been a theology professor for 17 years. We hired someone to teach my children to drive the car. Everybody's healthier, everybody's happier, the relationships work better. We have a role. What is God calling you to? I'm gonna venture a guess for a lot of us, we don't know what God wants us to do. We maybe have an idea, we have some interests. We're going to explore this question in a number of ways over the coming months. But I want us thinking and prayerfully asking, Jesus, where do I serve in this body of Christ? Realizing when we serve, we empower others to serve what God calls them to. He's glorified, we're satisfied, and the kingdom advances. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for Stephen and for these deacons that you've called into ministry. Thank you for the wisdom you gave to the apostles to realize they have to devote themselves to teaching and to proclaiming the kingdom and to prayer. But they also recognize the practical needs that can't be neglected. And thank you for this example that we share the load. You don't call us to be all things. You don't call us to do all things, but you give us our tasks. You entrust them to us, you empower us, and you call others where we're weak or we don't have training. And that as we each do what you've given us, you are glorified, the kingdom is advanced, and we're all blessed. Lord, my prayer for all of us is that you would stir our hearts to ask that question. What do you want us to do? Where do we fit in your kingdom? Because you've said you've gifted all believers. You've called all believers. We are all part of one body, so we all have a role. In the coming weeks, coming months, Lord, give us the courage to ask and the courage to respond to the challenge. Where do I belong in the body of Christ? Lord, guide us in this. Lord, show us where uh, we can properly honor and respect one another. I'm struck by how it's, it, they're all Jews and yet language is a barrier. And so there's a division here that needs to be addressed. Give us wisdom to know how to take down barriers that we would be one people in faithfulness. And Lord, give us the courage that in counting the cost of obedience, that we would recognize your kingdom is worth more than anything, more valuable than pearls, more valuable than treasure, and that the cost is worth it. Lord, we don't want to be persecuted. And we think of those in our world who are being persecuted. Pray your grace over them. But Lord, may we be found to be faithful as we seek where we belong in the body and we seek to honor one another in the body. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.